What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and my guest today is Azim Azar, all right? And he has this fantastic new book. It's really, really interesting, and it's called The Exponential Age, all right? So for any of you who are old enough to read a book like this, you know that technology has been accelerating at a rapid pace, right? So I was born in 85, you know, got myself a Nintendo, got into a little, you know, computer building in the 90s. And Azim and I actually talk about that in this conversation and our interest in technology. But when we look at where we were to where we're at now and how fast all this stuff is grown, the question is, where is it going? But Azim and I, we have discussions not only about various topics in his book, but we focus on some of the topics about how is this affecting our everyday life? How is this affecting workers? How is this affecting the economy? You know, all of these different aspects because it's something that we need to pay attention to. And we also dive into, you know, discussions around artificial intelligence and, you know, where that's going and where we're at and should people be afraid because there's so much information going around there and news and stuff to try to scare you. But Azim has, you know, been a entrepreneur in the tech space and he writes a lot about tech. So he is definitely the guy to talk to about all these topics. And, you know, one of my favorite things about Azim's book, which we'll talk about in this discussion, is that he's very optimistic about technology. And I, I love that because, you know, I personally feel there is way too much fear around technology. And while we, we need to be careful, there's just way too much fear, you know? So even if you're not like a tech nerd, you know, I'm, I'm not as techy as I used to be. These topics are important because when you're unfamiliar with these topics, you see these news headlines or you see people freaking out saying, well, my God, the Terminator is going to happen and AI is going to destroy the world. You hear these things, but when we educate ourselves about these topics, we're like, oh, okay. And if you're somebody like me who has anxiety, that's pretty beneficial. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Azim. Make sure you head down to the description. Make sure you are following him and grab a copy of The Exponential Age. I rarely, rarely, rarely ever read books on tech and stuff like that, but I really enjoyed Azim's book and I enjoy him even more since having this conversation with him. But before we get started with that conversation, just a reminder, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any episodes or upcoming projects and announcements and things like that. Like I have recently told all of you, but if you missed it, that's cool. There are two brand new books that I wrote that are absolutely free. It's linked down in the description. It is a collection of my writings around, you know, mental health, personal development, things that I've learned along the way, as well as a lot of evidence-based research from a lot of the books I read on psychology, philosophy, and all sorts of stuff. So these books are absolutely free, and I highly encourage you to share this with other people because you never know who's struggling like in silence. So share it over on social media and all that good stuff. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Azim Azar about his brand new book, The Exponential Age. All right. Hello, Azim. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? 
super well, super well. We've got kind of fall coming into London and the trees have gone orange and uh, there's still little glimpses of summer. So a bit of the, the, the best of what was, uh, what's been behind us and uh, a little hint of what's to come. That, that's awesome. I'm, I'm actually here in Las Vegas in the middle of the desert and it's finally not super hot. So <laughs> I've enjoyed the weather out here too. So today we're going to be talking about uh, your book, which you were so kind to send me an early copy of uh, The Exponential Age. So for those who have yet to meet you before we kind of talk about the book, what's, what's your background? What have you been up to that got you interested in this topic, specializing in tech and all this stuff? Uh, I think it was a matter of timing. Uh, I was born uh, the year after Intel produced the 4004 processor back in uh, uh, 1972. I was born, they produced a processor in 71. And so as I grew up in my childhood, it was alongside the development of the personal computer industry. And, and I got mm. my first computer, or my family did, uh, when I turned nine, a computer I still have. Uh, and so you you have this going on alongside you. It's like it's running alongside you as you grow up. And a lot of the the, the, the movies and the TV culture starts moving from mm. cop shows to space opera and robots and computers that way. So Star Trek, uh, Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica. Uh, and you get this connection, I think, with, with the computer and just being really fortunate that the schools I went to, mm. uh, starting with my junior school, uh, had had a computer that we had access to, and then we were able to get this cheap one at, at home, and it built from there. Yeah, no, I, I could definitely relate to that. I was I was born in '85, but I just became fascinated with computers and technology. Something I even you know, my son's 12, and he doesn't even know what like a CD burner is. When I tell him about how excited I was to get, uh, you know, this, I'm like, you can make copies of CDs and I used to really be into, you know, building computers and, and all that. And that's kind of, you know, when I first started noticing what your book talks about is how fast these things develop and advance with the technology and, you know, just looking back at, you know, hard drive space from when I was younger to now, like it is, it's complete it's madness. Crazy. So, so the book is called the exponential age. So what what kind of inspired this? Have, is this just something that you've been noticing and you kind of want to talk about it? Because you take some really interesting ang angles that we'll dive into, but mm. what really inspired the book? I have been, uh, like you, absolutely fascinated by, by what's been going on with these, these machines and the sense that I understood them better than people around me. So the sense of the question, should I buy the computer now or wait next mm -hmm. year when it's more powerful. And of course, if you wait next year, why not just wait the year after and <laughs> the year after that? Yeah. Uh, and a sense that I understood these processes in kind of a visceral way. And in the last five years, I, after I sold a company, I, I wrote a, uh, a newsletter, which is quite popular called Exponential View. And while I was doing that, I started to realize that this, this pattern that we'd seen in the computer industry for 60 years, was emerging in other places and in some places it was speeding up and in other places it was coming around for the first time and i thought look at all of the change that happened because of the computer industry mm -hmm. uh, TikTok, instagram before yeah. that facebook amazon personal computers video games i mean there's so much of our world mm -hmm. that this said to me there's a massive change coming and that was the inspiration for trying to 
bridge something that I had lived with and I had thought about quite a lot. And I talked about these exponential curves for a while professionally, mm-hmm. but seeing them show up in lots of other places uh, made me want to investigate more. And indeed, that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I personally, I learned so much from the book. Like, you know, I, I think an, an interesting, you know, aspect of it, like you were talking about, like our purchases. So as I was reading your book and uh, in a second, we'll talk about Moore's law, but I'll, I remember when I was a kid, cause I've always been a gamer, a PC gamer, right? You got to keep your computer up to date and I'm, you know, buying like Wham and video cards. But anyways, I remember, uh, I, I don't know if you remember the graphics card voodoo but they mm-hmm. came out with a new one and it was hundreds of dollars and i'm like i need this i need this so bad and i saved up and you know begged my parents to pay the difference and all that and i got it and it didn't seem like it was that much different right so you know nowadays you know a lot of it has to do with phones like you know apple's releasing their new phones uh you know there's new android phones every five minutes so for the average consumer how would how would you have them like kind of look at this without knowing about all the different processors and all that kind of stuff? Like like you were talking about, like, should I get it now or should I wait? You know, mm-hmm. because sometimes I feel like we spend a ton of money and we, we barely know the difference. Well, it, it, I think there's a moment where the difference did matter. And I will show you my story about a graphics card. So <laughs> when I was in my teens, uh, you would have just snuck out of diapers and you would have been changing yourself. You would have been four years old uh, or three or four years old at the time. And I was putting together my first PC, like on the Ooh. IBM standard, the IBM PC standard. This is before uh, Windows was um, uh, around. And if you were a kid, you didn't buy a branded computer from Hewlett Packard or IBM. Mm-hmm. You got what was known as a clone. And this was a set of components that theoretically worked to that IBM standard. So I wanted to get my graphics card. And back in the day, the highest end graphics card was known as 24 bits. Mm. And it would have, um, that means 16 million colors is effectively what 24 bits means. And that's kind of the color depth that a human eye can see. And you would be able to put a crazy 800 by 600 pixels up at a time. Mm. Now, that graphics card was going to cost me about $50 more than I had. And so in the end, in all of the trade-offs you have to make as a 16, 17 year old, I got a graphics card that was 15 bit, which meant it only mm. had 32,000 colors. So for a lack of $50, I lost out on 16 million colors. Mm. Uh, and that's where you ended up with that critical kind of, of trade-off that you faced. So then we get to a moment where we are today, where this cycle of constant improvement and effectively in the computer industry, the chips improve about 45% every year, you know, give or take year after year, compounding like the savings account we all wish we had. Mm -hmm. Uh, You get to a point where they're really, really good. And so maybe you don't notice a difference cycle to cycle. Maybe the argument is that the gap between the iPhone 13 and the iPhone 12 is not as significant as between the eight and the seven. And and that might well be the case, but underneath it, what's going on is we're making more computing available to the developers and there are clever and cleverer things that they can do. So the difference between using, for example, um, that face ID thing on your iPhone from a few Mm -hmm. years ago to today is that it's instant on a, everyday uh, on a modern smartphone, but it was a bit slow on one that's three years old. Mm. 
there is a question, of course, about how whether all of this is useful uh, or not. And we can kind of dig into that. But I'll leave listeners with just one idea here, which is that back in 1958, IBM uh, needed to get some computer components called transistors, which they were going to apply to really big, difficult questions. Mm. And they paid the equivalent of around a thousand bucks per transistor. And in 1958, all of humanity probably made a few thousand transistors a year. Today, a single iPhone has got tens of billions of transistors in it. And transistors cost fractions of, of a hundredth millionth of a cent. So mm. put that a different way. A hundred million transistors might cost a cent. Yeah. And that is that is the power of the, the exponential technology that we're looking at. Prices come down incredibly mm -hmm. fast. Because they get so cheap, we buy more of them and we use them more in ways that frankly seemed really fanciful. Uh, Snapchat filters, anyone? Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. And that's that's madness. It, it's crazy, like seeing that, like even just me looking at computer parts and everything like that and how much cheaper they've gotten over the years and everything. And, you know, for the, for the listeners, I think, you know, uh, you touch on this like very early in the book, which I think is, you know, super important is Moore's Law. Right. Mm -hmm. So for those who are kind of unfamiliar with Moore's Law, can you kind of, you know, break down what that is, but also you kind of answer a question that I've had for a while of when Moore's Law kind of flattens out. So can you kind of discuss mm. that as well? Yeah. Well, Moore's Law tells us what's happening in the semiconductor industry. So what is a semiconductor? It's a chip. And a chip is basically a rectangular wafer. I'm holding my fingers and thumbs <laughs> up to make a rectangle. And the speed of that chip is roughly going to be connected to the number of miniaturized transistors that we can fit on that chip. The Intel 4004 had about 2,000 transistors on the, chip, on the chip. The latest iPhones have billions so on their chips. So what Gordon Moore at Intel realized was that every year we could shrink a transistor. And because we could get it smaller, we could fit more on the same size chip. Mm. And in fact, that relationship was a, I'm gonna go into some high school math here, sorry about this. It's, it's a relationship <laughs> of, of squaring. So if you halved the size of a transistor, you could get four times as many on the same area of die because it's a half is a double and double times double, which is the length and the width is four. And he realized that roughly speaking, the way that we were improving the miniaturization of transistors meant that every couple of years would get about twice as many chip uh, transistors on a chip and the chips would get twice as fast and roughly speaking, be about the same per chip to make. And that was a, a descriptive relationship that he came up with. And it was so powerful and it unleashes so much economic value and wealth that the semiconductor industry, and it's not just Intel, it's all their suppliers, the people who make the amazing lasers and the people who make the, mm. the, the wafer polishing and it's a whole set of players, kind of coordinated for 50 or 60 years to make this true. But as we, we know, not you can't get things smaller forever. Yeah. Uh, and the initial transistors were measured in the scale of micrometers uh, and the transistors today are measured in the scale of, of um, uh, nanometers, so a thousand times smaller, actually atomic scale. And so for the last decade, people have been saying, look, Moore's Law is going to come to an end because as the transistors get smaller and smaller, they get to the limits of the physics. 
there might be too much heat to dissipate, which mm. will make the circuits um, unreliable, or there might be the effects of that other form of physics, quantum physics, where the world is really spooky and weird. And I use the idea of quantum drunk, right? Because in quantum physics, elect electrons don't behave the way we think they should behave. So mm -hmm. I kind of picture them as, you said you're in Las Vegas. I'm sure Las Vegas has seen the odd drunk person staggering yeah. across the sidewalk, uh, not behaving well. Well, imagine that's what happens on uh, semiconductors when they when they get really, the, the, the circuits get really, really small. Mm -hmm. But we've been able in a sense to tackle those limitations, both from traditional manufacturing, but also because we found new ways of getting the speed that we need. Mm, yeah. And, you know, with with that, uh, you know, something that you discuss, you know, in the book is like artificial intelligence and, you know, some other things that people are like, you know, concerned about. And, and you're actually pretty optimistic in the book. And I, I dig that. <laughs> like, so with like AI and stuff, are these or even machine learning, do you see these being affected by Moore's law, right? Because a lot of people, you know, they think like AI is going to like, you know, bring the apocalypse. So, but, you know, I, I recently had a guest on, we were talking about how it's, you know, more, more how this stuff might just affect jobs and the economy, but, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, but like, as far as, you know, people who think the apocalypse is coming, how does Moore's law affect what we're doing with AI and all that stuff? I mean, there are many apocalypses uh, yeah. that we have to guard for. Uh, I mean, Chris, I'd love to answer that in, in two parts, if I can. Mm -hmm. So let's yeah. talk about what's happened with, with machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. What's happened in the last 15 years is that we had some technical breakthroughs in machine learning, uh, which is a kind of software where the computers learn from the experience, you know, experience. But that learning is all programmed by, by us. Mm -hmm. uh, and what has the, the consequence of that technical breakthrough has been that things that computers couldn't do, we couldn't get programs to do. For example, look at a picture of a cat or a dog and say, which is a cat, which is a dog. Mm -hmm. Now do that really, really well. And they do it through increasingly complicated software that has got this name, artificial intelligence. And it's so much more complicated than the stuff we ran, we had before, that it requires millions or hundreds of millions of times more computing power than the software that we ran five, 10 years ago. Mm. And so the computers of yesteryear uh, can't, couldn't, couldn't have coped with this. Now, I don't know if your listeners ever play FIFA on the Xbox, but you know, you look at FIFA 21 um, and uh, it would not run on a computer of, 15 years ago, it just simply mm -hmm. wouldn't. And that's essentially what's happening within machine learning, right? Machine learning has created so many opportunities to build businesses that the, the industry, as good entrepreneurs should, has responded by constructing better and faster chips that are really, really good at meeting the needs of machine learning. And the numbers mm -hmm. are slightly crazy. So, you know, Moore's Law, mm -hmm. and I've talked about like trillions of transistors, but the most advanced machine learning systems require 300 million times more processing today mm. than the most advanced machine learning systems of 2013, which is eight years ago. 300 million fold for the absolute breakthrough uh, uh, systems. And that's a really uh, incredible uh, growth. And yes, mm -hmm. it's cost a bit more, but 
the, the processing has actually relatively come down in price. Mm. So I think it's a really um, it's a really uh, good example of what the exponential age looks like and what I talk about in my book. Then you ask the question about like kind of robots taking jobs and what happens yeah. next and do these things get out of out of control? If I said to you, really powerful spreadsheet rather than AI, it wouldn't feel so scary. Yeah. Because right? we all kind of know the people who write spreadsheets in our homes and in our offices. Yeah. Uh, and we kind of know what those spreadsheets do. And in a sense, for all the power of these, these systems, um, they aren't going to become conscious or uh, you know, start to take over things perhaps in the way it's presented in science fiction or in the movies mm -hmm. there might there might be some slight what 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 we might call a risk tiny danger um in which case it's great to have researchers worry about it but i argue in my book that in fact i don't even entertain the question of killer robots taking over the world and emerging uncontrolled because i think that's a separate discussion mm -hmm. i do talk about what happens in the workplace and largely as you know in my in chapter five i'm i'm worried about changes in the workplace but not because ai gets really powerful and replaces human jobs yeah and you know that that brings up another question so i i recently had uh a neil seth on here oh yeah he, he's he, a good friend of mine yeah yeah so i i'm like oh this would be perfect to ask you about because we were kind of talking about like so anil he he studies the brain and consciousness mm -hmm. and all that and the other day i came across an article where there was like a former uh programmer for some tech company he's like hey we got to worry about ai developing consciousness but i'm sitting here thinking i'm like but you you're a programmer right you work with computers you work with uh software you you, you program and all that and then we have people like anil right who study consciousness so is there, you know, the people who are working on AI, do they have like neuroscientists working with though, with them, like who understand, you know, the brain and are researching this, like how much overlap actually is there? Because I'm curious, like who would kind of know more about this, the programmers or the neuroscience people, you know what I mean? The the neuroscientists know about the brain, but they may have particular models uh, of mm. what the brain works, which may mean that it may uh, affect how they think about how brain-like systems might get built. Uh, I don't think Anil, by the way, is one of those. I mean, I think his book, uh, Being You, is excellent, and mm -hmm. his approach is uh, uh, practical and science-driven. Um, so the question is, do we need to really know how the brain works in order to build things that look like they're intelligent. Mm -hmm. um, and we know in other places that we don't necessarily copy how birds fly in order to build things uh, mm. that fly, uh, you know, like planes and helicopters. Many of the leading AI research labs <clears throat> do have neuroscientists involved though. And, you know, even the commercial ones. So if you look at, DeepMind, which is part of Google, the founder of DeepMind, Demis uh, Hassabis, you know, was very brain inspired in his approach and, and did his PhD in, in neuroscience. So there is a lot of uh, overlap. There are things that we can learn. There are patterns we can learn because animal brains are really, really good 
at engaging the act of intelligence. And in fact, they're the best things we know of at engaging in acts of intelligence anywhere. So mm-hmm. it makes sense to kind of figure out what evolution has taught us over the last couple of billion years to go off and be inspired by that and take ideas and try to figure them out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also fair to say that most neuroscientists take a, an approach that uh, you would call a kind of um, a functionalist approach, which is that they don't appeal to a supernature to devise where does intelligence come from. They say that there is a physical manifestation. There is a machine that might be really complicated, expressing itself in complicated ways. And that is what gives rise to intelligence or even harder to ask is consciousness. And, and I think they'll also accept that what, what we understand about that machine and its mechanisms, that machine being our brains or our brains and our brains within our bodies, is getting more and more complex every day. So about 20 years ago, there's an AI researcher called Ray Kurzweil who said, by 2019, for $1,000, you'd buy a a processor that is as powerful as a human brain. Mm. But that was based on what we knew about the human brain 20 years ago, not what we know about it now. And of course, it's getting that knowledge is telling us there are more and more depths to the brain. There's more richness. There are more expressions of complexity. Uh, And so... I think two things, the number of things can be true all at the same time, mm. that processors and computing can increase and grow and get really, really powerful and beyond what we think the brain currently processes. And that might not give us human level intelligence if that's indeed what we wanted, because we will understand so much more about how the brains work over that period of time. And we may find that it's a more and more hard problem. But I can also agree that it's the case that we don't need to appeal to some kind of undecipherable supernature to figure out how we could we could use science to understand the workings of a brain. So I think that's within our, our grasp mm-hmm. over some time period. So all of those things can be true at the same time, yeah. and they still don't get us to killer robots that decide they want <laughs> to kill us. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's one uh, one thing that you brought up in your book, too, is just about how we even, you know, predict where we're going to be and things like that, because things, you know, change. And even just as you go throughout the history in the book, like, uh, you know, we don't know where we're going to be in 20 years and what we're going to figure out or discover and and all that. Um, but can I can I say there are there are some mm-hmm. things that we might know, though. And hmm. and so all other things being equal, because things can happen, there can be wars, there can be, mm-hmm. you know, terrible earthquakes uh, uh, and, and so on. All other things being equal, humans like creativity and they like inventing and we're a little bit lazy. And <laughs> if I say to you and I run into you uh, in um, some other part of uh uh, America, which is not as flat as Las Vegas, and say, hey, Chris, I noticed that you're carrying all of your grocery shopping up this hill and down the hill to get to your new apartment. Did you know there's a shortcut where you can just walk around the hill and it's quicker and it's not as tiring? You will start taking that shortcut. So humans, on top of our ingenuity, innovation, creativity, Mm. are also ever so slightly lazy. And that attempt to construct new ways of doing things is what drives the improvements in the technologies that make their price performance get better and better because we want to make our electric cars with electric batteries that have less cobalt in them 
because that makes them cheaper and less them less damaging to the environment. We want the cost of sequencing genes so that we can come up with great gene therapies to come down in price so more people can access them. Yeah. We want our computers to be more powerful or more energy efficient because they allow us to do more. So that, that idea of um, trying to find new ways of doing things to be a little bit more efficient, I think is quite well embedded. Now we might decide as well that not only does that power and speed matter, but so does the pollution. So mm -hmm. does the damage, the, ma the manufacturing process cost uh, cause matter. And that might have us say, listen, we also need to make sure that there's a zero waste footprint. And we have to come up with new ways to do this, to minimize mm -hmm. waste or damage to the environment. But what we don't stop is that kind of urge. And I'm not even going to say it's relentless. I think it's natural mm -hmm. in most of us to try to make these little tweaks so i do think that certain things we we can rely on because they're uh, yeah. in, intimate to what it is to be human yeah no that that that's an excellent point and it, it makes me wonder like right before we actually hopped on there's uh i don't i don't know if you've heard uh you know at the time we recorded this yesterday there was this big news story about uh, a facebook whistleblower about how they kind of uh you know their algorithms promote polarization and you know, upsetting content that get people all riled up. But anyways, the question I, I want to ask you, because like I said, I, uh, your book gave me hope because you're very optimistic about this stuff, but we're talking about, you know, uh, producing more at cheaper costs. Like I, you know, I, I look back at, you know, my, my whole thing is I was always this introverted kid. It was hard for me to talk to people. I had social anxiety and just the internet and everything gave me access to other people to talk and stuff like that. So I see it as kind of like a net positive and with phones being cheaper and processors being cheaper and all this, people all over the world, you know, have been getting access to these phones. You talk about how cheap they've become in the book and how many people around the world have access to this. But on the other hand, we see, you know, uh, issues going on in different countries, uh, you know, where there's just polarization and, you know, riots happening and all sorts of tragedies. And I'm just curious, like, as a whole, do you see the the exponential age and all this as kind of a net positive, or does it need? Do we need to kind of regulate and take a step back? You know what I mean? Like, is it too much too soon? I mean, a large part of the book is uh, devoted to these types of questions and these types of issues, and I explain in uh, in chapter eight how uh, the very, very large platforms, um, not just the current ones, but the future ones and future mm -hmm. ones that are, are based on technologies we don't yet have, are likely to increase different types of polarization and segmentation and, and why, you know, why that's an issue. Um, and so it's important, I think, for us to recognize that declining prices are not the only thing that, that matters. You know, the fact that everyone has a phone really changes the society, the politics and the economy within which we live. So for example, some estimates suggest that in the decade to 2020, the, the national income, the GDP of Egypt rose by about 25% because of mobile phones. Mm. So in other words, the fact that the people could participate in an economy more effectively, they could order products, there weren't as many delays, they could 
find new jobs more quickly because of their connection to the economy through this device added a quarter to the wealth of people in that country, which is significant. And there's similar data for, for other countries. I just choose the Egypt one as an mm -hmm. example. So we certainly do benefit from that. And we certainly do benefit from the fact that solar power is now cheaper than running fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. uh, and that will help us again with climate change. And we benefit from the fact that gene therapies are declining rapidly uh, in price because of these exponential trends. But that's only one aspect of what it is to live in a society. Mm -hmm. And I think half of my book makes the point that in the exponential age, alongside these changing technologies come changing, changing, pardon me, come changes in who holds the power and what kind of power do they hold. Mm. And so that power often goes to large-scale technology companies. We call them the tech platforms as if they're fixed, but there will be many others, yeah. large-scale technology platforms. Or they might go to bad actors in the case of cyber attacks and cybersecurity. Advantage moves to them. Or they might go to employers at the cost of workers. And, and so if we look at that, we might say, look, let's not worry about it because everyone's going to get richer because of this whole GDP effect. Or we might say that is a problem because people live their lives not just as dollars and cents, but yeah. as humans embedded with personal relationships and, and the sense of dignity and a sense of identity, uh, a sense of in, you know, internal narrative, which exists in their worker relationships, in their communities, um, and in their politics. And if those things do matter, then the bad outcomes that come from that these technologies getting cheaper and getting ubiquitous are things that we need to tackle. Mm. And so if those things matter, then I think you need to step in and figure out what the rules should be. Yeah. And we always have regulation. I mean, people talk about regulation as if it's um, a bad thing, but regulation is what put brakes in cars. <laughs> yeah. Regulation is what prevents someone selling poison and putting it in a bottle and saying, this is an antacid for stomachache or gastric reflux. Mm -hmm. Regulation is what makes aircraft manufacturers certify their planes so their planes don't crash out of the sky for being unsafe. And when we allow people to self-certify largely, which way we do, their planes start to fall out of the sky and people start to die. So I think that we need to recognize that we always live with with regulation. Those were examples of what you might call down regulation. They, they are regulations that look at businesses and say, you need to operate in a different way for the benefit of society. You also get up regulation. So in the UK where I'm based, there's mm -hmm. a regulation that gives you an enormous tax break if you invest in innovative companies. Mm. So it's a regulation that says we want more innovation. So if you invest in these tech startups, you get, you get tax relief. That's an up regulation. So, you know, regulation is just a thing that we use to tweak, to manage the rules to achieve outcomes that we care about. Mm -hmm. So if we think that the runaway power of exponential technologies creates super dominant companies, and those super dominant companies contribute to a polarization that is unhealthy and bad for our democracies, then we might want to come in and say, we need a few more rules around mm -hmm. that. And we need rules that are effective. And what I do in the book, The Exponential Age, is I 
talk about the underlying processes that give rise to these bad symptoms that we might not like, like polarization, mm -hmm. so that we can come up with rules that tackle not the symptoms, but the underlying causes. And that's really my, my perspective uh, uh, on this. And, and people might say, listen, we actually don't like any kind of regulation. Yeah. We don't like any kind of intervention. We prefer a really competitive law of the jungle. Well, then we can disagree on that and disagree in the space of politics about that point. Yeah, no, I 1000% I uh, agree. You know, I, uh, you know, one of the one of the types of books I love reading is just about human irrationality and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I look at it like hey, we don't always make the best decisions and sometimes we need to be nudged in the right directions. But when it comes to regulation, like something like this. This, you know, uh, let me know if I'm explaining or asking mm. this right. All right. So when talking about regulation and then also talking about, you know, things that are good for the environment and everything like that. So here in the United States, I'm not sure how it is in the UK and other parts, but here there's been this battle over, you know, climate change, fossil fuels and all of that kind of stuff. Right. So like you just mentioned, you talked about this in the book, how, you know, solar panels, they're, they're becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to make. Well, one of the arguments is, you know, well, if we switch to this, we're going to lose a ton of jobs, the people working in the oil fields and the coal mines, all these other things. And, you know, a, a, a decent chunk of your book is talking about how these technologies and, you know, even automation, it creates new jobs. It's not, you know, taking it kind of balances out. But anyways, anyways, the question I'm trying to ask is, you know, how... How does, you know, the person who's working in the oil field adapt if we do, uh, you know, right now we're working on um, the infrastructure package here in the United States that would get some more green energy. Like, how do those people adapt? Like, how do we get those people on board? How do we explain to them like, hey, you can shift and it's not a massive transition or new training. Like, should the government be providing training to help make that shift? Like, does that all kind of make sense? Mm, it, it does make sense. It's a really big question. And, uh, you know, let's note that some of these trends are are in train. Um, and so the decarbonization one is definitely in train. And it's not from technologists. It's from uh, bankers and, uh, renew and, and energy providers because it's cheaper to do these things and it's cheaper to finance them than it is to build a new coal plant. Um, the previous American president uh, talked about coal, beautiful coal, and mm -hmm. yet employment in U.S. coal production uh, declined 24 percent mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, years through to November 2020, even with a pro-coal administration. Uh, and the reason is that it's expensive and people don't want to buy it. And, and there are no new coal plants being built for good reason. So. That, that is a, uh, the starting point I think is to look at that and to recognize what is happening. You know, don't be like the oil company execs who I talked to four or five years ago. I remember in one particular, not American oil company, who told me that electric vehicles, cars were terrible and people were always running out of range and no one would buy them. And when I said to them, have you ever driven a, a Tesla? Because the Tesla was really the only thing out of any yeah. quality at the time. They hadn't. They hadn't even been into a showroom. I mean, they were just speaking from some talking point that was mm. not grounded in an understanding of what was going on. When we come to 
uh, this particular question. And it really is, it's a, it's a multi-million job question. Although that said, there are only um, 40,000 uh, people, uh, pardon me, is it 40,000? Just looking at my, my chart. Yeah, it's about 40,000 people in US coal production at the start of hmm. 2021. Um, so it's a, um, it's, a small, it's a small number. There are many more truck drivers and there are many more people working in McDonald's, frankly, um, th than that. Um, if you look at the pattern of automation in uh, economies, the long-term effect has is always that it creates many, many more jobs. Uh, and that's because as the economies get richer, we generate the need for new services and those new services need people involved. Yeah. You know, my joke is the yoga teaching profession is growing super fast, right? For, for that, that type of reason. Mm -hmm. The issue then is not so much what happens in the long term, but it's how we get to the long term. And because the long term is easy for economists to write, it's really painful to live if you're you know, out of work. Yeah. And, and so to that point, I think it's really incumbent on uh, governments to and companies to talk honestly about the nature of the shift and to create positive stories around the nature of that shift and then create the right incentives, whether it is retraining or as I talk about more flexible social welfare nets so that the transition can happen uh, without people being made destitute. And take a look at oil and gas where oil and gas in, um, companies have got incredible heavy engineering and complex project management capabilities, probably the best in the world. And a lot of the work that we have to get done in this decarbonization of, of our grid and, 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 and the economy as a whole is large scale engineering complex management problems. Mm -hmm. So they have lots and lots of the capabilities. We're going to end up taking excess carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and putting it into the underground reservoirs the best talent in the world for that job exists within the large oil and gas companies. Mm. So at some point they're gonna transition their businesses into being part of the decarbonized economy, which some companies like um, Orsted in, in Denmark and Ibadola in Spain and BP in mm -hmm. the UK are starting to do at different rates. Um, so they're, they're, then it's really got to be incumbent on uh, governments to recognize this transition is going to happen and decide how much pain they want individuals to take yeah um, and the more pain you want them to take the less support you give yeah and in yeah. europe certainly we're stepping up largely stepping up to provide that the, the systems for that transition yeah i'm really i'm really hoping you know that you know like you like you said i think the most important part of that is people having honest conversations right you know there's there's so much lobbying and stuff like that here in the states and you know people hear what they want and you know i'm really into learning about our own biases and all that kind of stuff and yeah i think about it too i'm like no you can you can transition and there's so much and you know one of my favorite parts about the book where i had this like light bulb moment was when you were talking about, you know, there's so much fear around automation. And, I, you know, I just think, you know, naturally we're just uh, part of our human nature is we're afraid of something new, right? Like there's that resistance. Like we want to keep things the way they are. And like we don't want to change. But you talk about, you talk about Amazon's automation and as many issues I have with Amazon, you talk about how much they've automated and they're like, they are, you know, one of the, the, the biggest companies that is all about efficiency. We talk about how, you know, we saw during the pandemic, even with all their automation, they started hiring like crazy. 
they started mm-hmm. hiring real people. So aside from that, like when, uh, you know, when we're talking about some of these, like, you know, middle-class jobs, I think about like truck drivers and there's been more conversations around, you know, autonomous, like long haul trucking and stuff like that. So let's say, let's say uh, a trucker came up to you and they said, Azim, I've been a trucker my whole life. This is how I support my family. I drive across and now they want to have, you know, autonomous trucks driving from one side of the country to the other. What am I supposed to do? Right. So with, with, so this let autom- me jump in. I, Cause mm-hmm. you know what the, that truck driver is not going to say that to me. What he's going <laughs> to say to me is, Azim, all these techies threatened that autonomous trucks would tra- take my job. And right now I am working 130 hours a week, sleeping the minimum I can, because the, the instant I unload, there, there, there is another two loads that customers are trying to jam on, my, on, on the back of my truck. Hmm. Because there is a short a trucking crisis and there are is a shortage of drivers in the US, uh, and the the labor markets are really complicated. There because there are so many pushes and pulls around hmm. uh, you know relative prices and who's paying for what and where do people want to work and you know maybe as has happened in Eastern Europe uh, and in China, um, kids who get who grow up in richer societies than their parents decide they don't want service jobs. So they don't want to work in restaurants or, or driving trucks. And then you, you end up with a, a shortage. So labor markets are mm. very, very complicated. Um, what you need, you know, and if you're a trucker, the challenge that you have is that you are a, an independent um, operator. So you are not working as part of a company that might pay for you to do training every week that, uh, and, and might have a career path. So the challenge I think then is what happens for, for people like, like that? Um, and we can give a technocrat technological story solution here. And we can say, well, even if the trucks are doing these long haul li- lines on their own, and these incredibly straight interstates uh, mm-hmm. lines, we'll need truckers to take, do the last five miles. And that's what, mm. how the trucking job will evolve. We'll need people to run maintenance on those lines. And that's how the job will evolve. I mean, the job will no doubt start to evolve in some period of time. Um, if you're a trucker who then says, no, I want to do exactly what I have done always and forever for the last 20 years, for mm. the next 30, that's a that's a re- that's an inflexible mindset. I don't think people are are going to be like that. But I think it's really unhelpful when industries come out and say we're going to put every truck driver out of business. We're going to put every radiologist out of business. Yeah. We're going to put it, you know that. And and if that's your ambition, that's a strange ambition. If your ambition <laughs> is to say, yeah. listen, we want to improve the the cost the the quality of radiologies and reduce the costs, or we want to make trucking um, more sustainable and safer and, you know, more well compensated and, uh, you know, cheaper for the people sending packages. That's a different type of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And just, you know, that's how they, 
they need to sell these things and these innovations, not by, hey, we're going to eliminate jobs. It's like, hey, here's how we're going to, you know, change and create new jobs and adjust. Or like we were talking about, uh, pay for training. Like, hey, you currently work for us. We're going to train you how to do this. And, you know, I, I have just a couple more questions for you. Mm-hmm. And one of them, you, t- you have a whole section on like quantum computing. So earlier this year, like a bajillion other people on the planet, I got into cryptocurrency and investing, but I like to learn before I do anything like, so I read a ton of books and anyways, with what I understand about the blockchain and everything super secure and the way they set up the blocks and everything, it's like impossible to hack. Right. But they say that the only, the only thing that might be a threat to the security of the blockchain is quantum computing. So with what with where we're at with quantum computing, like, is this something that people should be concerned about? Because, uh, you know, uh, it's not just about cryptocurrency, more and more companies and, you know, even like gaming or you have NFTs that are becoming part of the blockchain. So is there any concern that quantum computing is going to be part of this exponential age and be able to start breaking into the blockchain, do you think? I quantum uh, is definitely going to be part of the exponential age, uh, as will uh, blockchains. Although, you know, blockchains are here uh, uh, today, and quantum doesn't in of itself break uh, blockchains. It breaks one type of cryptography, which is sort of security system that uh, some types of blockchains use. So one could build ones that are quantum resistant at, at some point. Um, it's unlikely that that's where quantum computing systems would be used in the first instance. So mm-hmm. they're really hard to build. They're really hard to engineer. You've got to understand that these are machines that are often cooled to minus 273 degrees Celsius, a fraction, well, not as cold as that, but a fraction above absolute zero. And they're very, very sensitive uh, and expensive to make. And, and we're not going to make very many of them in the first few years. Mm-hmm. And that, though they will be put to use, I suspect, in the pharmaceutical industry to help us discover new materials and new drugs, rather than in cracking uh, blockchains, certainly for financial profit. Yeah. What governments do with them is another matter. But, you know, we intimately have to trust our governments at some point on, on these types of issues. So I don't think it's something that it's certainly not on my radar as a risk Mm. to my cryptocurrency activity or my blockchain holdings. No. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. Who's going to invest that much money (laughs) in all this technology just to break it. You know what I mean? So, so yeah. It's also about who's going to, who's going to get access to it. Right. So it's not Mm. like you're going to be able to go down to Walmart and pick up a quantum (laughs) computer on on thursday you know what's going to happen is that you are going to um access the quantum computing capacity through the cloud interface of a company like microsoft or a company like amazon and pay by the hour and Mm. so if you're going to go and do that and you are seen to be cracking blockchains you're probably going to be against the use policy of those platforms they'll turn you off and you won't really have a place to go and the fbi will know where you live 
Good, good. I, I like that answer. And I think there's a lot of fear right now around like cryptocurrencies and blockchain and stuff. So I like talking with people about that because it seems like, you know, there's a little too much fear being put in, but I'm glad some mm -hmm. people are uh, ad uh, adapting to it and all that. But one, uh, my final question that just came to me during this conversation, because I, you know, only recently got into investing and being smarter with my money earlier this year, I, I don't know if it's still going on, but there was a massive chip shortage. And I'm curious because I, I just kept hearing chip shortage, chip shortage. It's affecting the economy and the markets. Can you just real quick explain to me what the hell happened and is it still going on or have we recovered from this chip shortage issue that we were facing? Because even one of my friends who works in the car industry, he works at a Toyota dealership. He was talking about how they were having issues because of this quote unquote chip shortage. And I'm just thinking like there's a bajillion different types of chips, like what is happening? So can you, can you break that down for me real quick? What, what's happened is uh, that there is fragility in the network of suppliers who build who build chips and amongst their their customers. And mm. that fragility uh, just means that uh, a problem in one end transmits all the way back to a problem uh, mm. uh, in the other. The chip shortage is mostly being felt by the automotive companies, right? The, the automakers. The, the question is, why has it only been until September, October 2021 that Apple started to feel the chip shortage when car companies have been having it for more than a year? Yeah. And the reason is that automotive companies uh, are used to running really small inventories. They don't keep stock. Uh, they rely on getting it just in time. And when the COVID downturn happened, uh, at the start of 2020, they cut their orders for chips. Um. And so the chip manufacturers started to say, well, who will buy these chips? And the consumer electronics company said, oh, well, we'll buy them because they were better, more resilient businesses. Mm -hmm. And so they bought a lot of capacity. And now we're at the other end of this where the demands are going back up. But there is a wide, more broad-based shortage because of that rapid shock of companies stopping their orders. So would Ford or Volkswagen uh, have suffered these issues had they placed larger upfront, longer term orders rather than shorter term orders? I suspect not. Mm. And part of the argument in my book is that as we look out into the exponential age where shocks will come more frequently, is that the value of resilience needs to become more important within companies and frankly in nations than the value of value of efficiency which is the value that we've driven a lot of our decisions by over the last 40 or 50 years so i think the chip shortage will um will get solved as these things do get solved mm -hmm. uh, partly it will be about building more factories but chip factories take years to build so don't mm. hang out just for that um, <laughs> but there, there are a lot of com complex dynamics in these um in these stories and the question to ask is well if there's a chip shortage and apple uses chips in its phone how come apple isn't, hasn't had a shortage yeah right okay. and why do you yeah no that that makes a lot more sense now it's it's coming together so yeah and as you, like I, I i barely even got to ask half my questions and i love the book oh. so for for everybody who is interested in checking out the book two things 
uh, is the book, the book's out, but is it out internationally? And where can people find you to keep up with you? Yeah, thank you. So the book is uh, available in uh, the US and Canada from Barnes and Noble and Amazon and many independent stores. It's called The Exponential Age and it's out in hardcover and in audiobook. So you can get it on the Audible uh, and it's available in ebook as well. So on every uh, format that you like, The Exponential Age. Uh, and if you're outside of the US and Canada, it's just called Exponential and it is available on all of those formats, hardcover, mm. uh, audiobook and ebook. And the audiobook is in fact read by me. So buy yourself a oh. hardcover and the, uh, the ebook. And if you want to find me, uh, the best place to find me is either my newsletter, which is exponentialview.co, that's exponentialview.co, or you can find me on Twitter. And in America, I'm at Azim, that's A-Z-E-E-M, A-Z-E-E-M. And if you're outside of the US, it's Azim at A-Z-E-E-M, that's A-Z-E-E-M. Beautiful. Awesome. Azim, thank you so much. I know you are a busy man and I love the book and, and yeah, I, I hope it takes off and everybody learns as much as I did and maybe we'll be able to do this again sometime. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Azim. I learned a ton from him and yeah, like I said, I've been out of the loop, uh, with tech for a long time. You know, I, I play video games and you know, I, I try to get, you know, uh, decent enough phones. I'm still like a couple iPhones behind, but anyways, I love learning about this stuff, but mainly I love talking with people like Azim who are optimistic about where we're going, because if it wasn't for technology, we wouldn't have so many, so many different conveniences and the ability to connect with people and stuff. And, you know, if I'm just being a realist, like technology is not going anywhere. So we need to know, you know, what are the pros and the cons and far too many uh, headlines and stories out there about the negative aspects of technology. So I'm really, really appreciative of not only, you know, Zine's book, but the work he does, you know, educating people about this stuff, talking about it. And, you know, I, I think Azim's work's important too, because he focuses on how this is affecting everyday people and ways that we can adapt and adjust because, you know, with automation and everything, that is a huge fear that people have. So be sure that you head down to the description, make sure you are following Azim and grab a copy of his book, The Exponential Age. All right. But before I get you, let you go, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you haven't yet, make sure you grab those two free books I just released. It's also linked down in the description. Okay. And if you're new to the podcast, make sure you're subscribed or following. And if you like this episode or any other episode, make sure you share it. It helps spread the word about the podcast. The algorithms love it and all that good stuff. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Azim. He's a super busy guy, so I really appreciate it. And for all of you, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, I hope you have an awesome rest of your day and stay tuned because tomorrow we're going to actually be talking to, uh, yeah, a buddy of Azim. These two guys were friends. Uh, we're talking to Anil Set about his brand new book, Being You. And it's all about consciousness all right so it's it's a really interesting episode i loved it so make sure you stay tuned for that episode tomorrow i'm sure you're going to enjoy it all right so have a good one and i will see you next time